At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 696th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson from Urban Farm U. I'm here with Bill McDormand tonight. Welcome, Bill. Hello, hello. (laughs) Hey, so... Tonight, warm and cool season crops. Do we plant cool season crops in the fall and warm season in the spring? How is it that cold, cool season varieties get sweeter as the weather gets colder? Can warm season crops last through the blistering heat? Can we strengthen the genetics of any crop through selection and adaptation? That's what Bill and I are going to be chatting about tonight. Well, mostly Bill. I'm going to be prompting him with with your questions. So let's start with what's the difference, Bill, between warm season and cool season crops? There's probably some arguments that people could have. When I, for 28 years, as I ran my little seed company, High Altitude Gardens, it was a real definite definition. Um, Warm season crops were crops that would not survive a frost, period. Like a tomato. Like tomatoes and peppers and beans and squash mm-hmm. were the ones that would most likely. Now, there are stories of all of those surviving some frost, you know, just barely dipping below, say for an evening, say you have a sudden frost in the spring or something, but generally mm-hmm. that's the definition. So, you know, I lived at 6,000 feet. We could have a frost anytime. I, one summer we had nine frosts in two hailstorms between Labor Day and Memorial, Memorial Day and Labor Day. Wow. Nine frosts. And so if you had warm season crops, you had to have protection. You had to make sure that somehow you could protect them from a frost if it happened, whether that was cones early in the year, whatever, you know, other device. Now I've, I've learned, you know, I think most people generally, if you don't live in an extreme climate, you know, it makes sense. Warm season things will do better when it gets hot, cool season will do better when it's cold. And as you get down into where I live now in Arizona, you know, cool season means you, you plant them in the fall and they go through the winter and they mm-hmm. actually do better. This is, that's the time of year that we grow cabbage and kale and Swiss chard down here. And so that's, that's generally the definition, I think. Well, so uh, Judith has a question. She said, when can we plant cool season crops in the Phoenix, in the low desert, essentially? And what? that used to be different than it is now. 15, 20 years ago, I was started planting cool season crops from seed in September. And then some of the lettuces and that's in early October. And I've had to, and I've updated my planting calendar to reflect this, but we had to push everything forward a month. Wow. You mean like back because it stays hot longer? Yeah. So rather than planting the cool season crops from seed 
in September. Often it's October and I was planting lettuce in November. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a climate change thing. That's a climate change thing. And, and I think that points to a general truth that I've always believed about gardening is that especially if you're not, uh, you know, an avid or maniacal gardener. Yeah. And, and by that, I mean somebody who's doing it all the time, all day, every day, and doing it all year, every year. A community of people will help you, you know, get together with others right around you. Yeah. You guys are going to be the only ones that know when to do these sorts of things as the future comes. And so good move tonight. Get on with Greg Peterson. Ask him. He's got how many years of experience? That's really uh, 40, good. 45 years of growing in Phoenix. You know, but, uh, my, one of my favorite hobbies, I was talking about this with somebody yesterday, is walking alleys. You know, most towns still have alleys, even Phoenix, the older parts of Phoenix. And yep. that, that's where you can look over the back fence and see gardens a lot of time. See them in their real state, right? The ones right. That, are, that are a little messy and the ones that really interest me. And I've, uh, more often than not, somebody's out there a lot of times, especially at dusk or early in the morning, and ask when did you plant that? Wow, that looks really good. And you could probably get more good information in your neighborhood doing that than almost any other way. Amen to that. There's an article on my website that I wrote maybe a decade ago called Margaret the Condo Gardener. <laughs> and Margaret wanted a garden. She lived in a condo and she was walking the neighborhood alleys one day and she saw over the back fence this woman's garden in her backyard that had been not tended. So she went around to the front door and knocked on the front door and introduced herself. And within a couple of weeks, she was tending that garden. There you and go. Yeah. So she was running the garden for the homeowner and the homeowner was getting stuff and Margaret was getting stuff. See? Yeah. I think, you know, one, an article I read, this was years ago, is that there's something like 14,000 acres of tillable garden space in the city of San Francisco. Wow. Within, so if you've ever been to San Francisco, it's like, you know, apartments and it's so dense and there's neighborhoods and, but it's all the little alleyways and the utility corridors and the, the empty lots that are there. If you just Google map and add all that up, that could all be garden. And there are some groups, I guess, that we're targeting that doing community gardens and stuff. Yeah. And starting with your neighbors is a great way. I like that idea. And people are starting to ask when to plant where. Now I can I can answer when to plant in the low desert. Right. I've actually connected with a couple of Asheville plant and Asheville permaculture on Facebook to start learning that because right. Yeah. I don't have yeah. a clue here. Right. I don't have a clue here. And the first thing you're going to want to do is you're going to want to get a planting calendar. Yeah. A planting calendar for your area. I have the plant at plantingcalendar.org is a low desert planting calendar. Right. It's there for free. I've been giving it away for 20 years now. And that'll tell you what to plant in the low desert, but you really need to go figure out what is to plant in your area. So find, you know, type in the name Asheville and then planting calendar and see what comes up or right. that's me. You know, right. if you live in, uh, uh, Wyoming, C lives in Wyoming. What's the n nearest city to your to where you live? Type in the name of your city and planting calendar and see what comes up. Often the Cooperative Extension has one. Yeah. And so, you know, those are all being challenged. Yes. You know, not all of them have been 
updated or whatever. And so I think it's really interesting to start. Let's talk about a couple of strategies. Okay. One, one is that, and this has happened here several times, is we get a, a month of really warm weather earlier than we've ever had before. Yeah. And that always sucks you in, right? Oh, well, you know, it's been three weeks now without a frost in March. Let's go ahead. You know, why not? And so, and that's okay if you have a strategy to cover stuff, just in case you get that killer frost. And this year we did, it was down to 18 degrees. Got wow. all the fruit tree blossoms, got everything that had been put in early. I mean, you can weather a two to three degrees, you know, like maybe down to 27, but 18. And I think those kinds of extremes are, we're going to see more and more. So we're going to have to just think about mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. You know, it used to be that the older gardeners that I met were actually the most humble and conservative. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to a town and ask the older gardeners that have been around and gardening for a long time when they plant. This would be in the Mountain West where most of my travels were. And they'd say, oh, I don't plant my tomatoes till about June 10th, you know, outside. And why? Because they've just been burned so many times. Who wants to do that? Who wants to go through losing everything, you know? Right. And over the years, every once in a while, it could get away with it some years, but you know, they, you just get conservative as you get older. And, and then young, like, you know, permaculture students, I'm, we're going to nail this. We're going to grow all our own food. We're out there. You know, they're willing to take that risk. And so, you know, if people have any questions about specific crops and things. I'll just, let me just mention one that I thought was pretty brilliant that mm-hmm. my father came up with. One year he was out in his little garden in Shoup, Idaho, and he was digging a trench that was about a foot deep in the middle of his garden. You know, he was just like moving the dirt. So he had a V-shaped trench that was about a foot deep. And uh, like, what are you doing? You know, and he planted, he had started in flats early, little corn plants. And corn's kind of hard to transplant unless you have really good, you know, uh, starter trays. I use Todd's Speedling trays. And you want to transplant them when they're really young. So his were ready. And he planted a little teeny plant. And some of them, he actually did seed in the bottom of this trench. And then I saw him get out a roll of plastic that was about 18 inches wide and roll it over the top of the whole thing at garden level and just put a little dirt and rocks along the sides. And so he had made a V-shaped greenhouse. And, wow. and, and so what he said was that even by seed, you know, it takes corn, what, eight to 10 days to germinate, yep. or if you put little plants and then by the time the three and a half weeks or so four weeks had gone by his plants were just touching the bottom of that plastic and i noticed that was just about the last frost-free date if you were conservative so then he just pulled the whole thing off so he had everything in there early but he didn't have to worry about it if there was a frost so that's the kind of thing i'm I'm telling the story to get people to think in a little bit yeah Tess, tess says the tiniest of high tunnels lol right yeah, yeah, homemade. I think it was, he got an 18 or a wide roll of uh, saran wrap or something, you know? Oh, nice. We're, we're talking choop. <laughs> <laughs> nice, 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 nice. Joan says, how much does soil temperature affect planting? It's primary. It is. Why? Yeah, germination. Yeah. Germination needs two things. It needs moisture and temperature. So if you're trying to plant things early in the spring, I mean, and air temp, if you look at a graph of air temp, you can do that on weather underground, right? They show you every day the fluctuation of air temp. 
Mm-hmm. If you if they showed you what soil temp was, it goes like this. It's almost a yeah, it cools down and grid to at night, but then it warms up in the day and it's just way less. And, and as the sun, you know, gets stronger and the days get longer, whatever the soil temp comes up, and there's definite trigger points at which um, different crops will germinate. And so that's one of the reasons why Johnny's selected seeds catalogs have been favorites among gardeners for 40 years is that he has the germ temp charts uh, for almost every was... crop in the in the catalog so get an old one before they stop printing paper probably like most companies and keep it around for that if nothing else there you go that was that was joan's other question she said is there a chart so you read her mind very good you know they really had when i had a high altitude gardens we used to put that on every packet and minimum germ temp and there are some generalities it's so so first in the spring there are the mustards go in you know and arugulas and things like that they can they can pop in really cold temps up in the 40s and then when it hits 50 then you can put in beets and there's a few others chard and then when you get to 60s the carrots and then you know tomatoes and peppers won't pop unless the soil's over 70. well so you said in the spring if you're right. gardening in Arizona, the low desert in Arizona, right. that's a fall planting. Right. And all so all those things you just mentioned, arugula, right. beets, carrots, that all gets planted in the fall. Right. And so you, again, look at the Johnny's catalog because soil temp germination percentage will not happen if the soil's too hot. Mm-hmm. There's oh. a range for most of so you you know, you may want to like cover it up, shade it. You know, so you can pay attention. I don't know if that's a problem for people in Phoenix. I've never had that problem here in uh, in Cornville, but I would look at that. Yeah. You what will happen is you'll get some germ, but you just won't get optimum germ probably if it's too warm. Yeah. Tess yeah. has a Tess has an interesting question. She says, "What does it mean to stratify seeds?" Great question. The word stratify came from the tree seed industry. So if you just go out and collect, say, pinion pine nuts and uh, get pine cones for ponderosa pines or if you're getting maples, wherever you are, whatever, if you're collecting tree seeds and you go to plant them, lots of times they don't germinate. Or if, you, if you're in a seed lab and you're trying to get them to germinate and they won't germinate. Mm-hmm. So trees have learned a lot of things. They're really wise old things. And so most of them, especially in the northern hemisphere, have to go through a cold period. Uh, especially the ones where it freezes at night for at least part of the year. So those seeds have to be cold treated, which would be a better description of stratification. It was called stratification because they used to have these big trays and they would layer paper or a sphagma moss or something and put a layer of seeds and then put other stuff over it. You want enough air in there, but they wanted them cold. They put them in refrigerators. Then they pull them out and then put them in these germination chambers you know, to see if they were successful. And they did a lot of testing. Uh, it's a multi-million dollar thing to, to sell tree seedlings to reforestation projects for mines right. or for other, for the U.S. Forest Service and stuff. So a lot of stuff, a lot of the original testing went on, but the word carried on. So generally, this is what I've learned. If you have a wildflower seed, not as much the grasses, but it can affect them. And especially tree and shrub seed, you need to bring it down to about 40 degrees or so, or refrigerator temperature for roughly the amount of time it would be under snow Mm -hmm. or if it was in snow country. 
So, you know, I used to get three to four or five months of snow. So that's what I would do with my, my stuff. I would take my seeds, I'd put them in a little baggie with um, peat moss in it. Make sure it's kind of damp. It's okay. Put the seeds right in, mix the whole thing up. I would poke a couple of holes in the bag and then toss wow. it in the back of my fridge and leave it there. And that was really one of the easier ways to do it. Sometimes stratification is more complicated than that first a few varieties. And I would say Columbine, especially Colorado Columbine. There's just one that comes to mind, which germinates better or stratification takes place better if you do that mm -hmm. and then take it out and let it warm up for a day or two and then put it back put in it back and let in. it cool down. Yes. And then bring it out. And it's that fluctuation of temperatures that actually breaks its dormancy is what the word would be called. I used to All have right? to... So, Go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say that most all of our food crops, you don't have to do that to, right? That, that's why there are food crops. They were easy. You didn't have to go through all this stuff just to get them to grow. Yeah. Right? For 10,000 years, people didn't have refrigerators. They didn't know what was going on. So almost everything we eat, you don't have to do that with. But now that we're broadening into medicinal uh, herbs and to other wild edible plants, and we're trying to bring those in or we're trying to you know, landscape our yards with native plants. That's where stratification is starting to be an issue. Got it. So there's also the term scarify seeds. Are you familiar right. with that? Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, it, it turns out that some seeds, actually the categories overlap. There's a lot of seeds that you could, you could scarify, which means you scrape them. You somehow physically change the outside pericarp. And sometimes, you know, there's all sorts of techniques that have come up, putting them in hydrogen peroxide, putting them in acid for a little while, putting them in your mouth, lupin seeds, um, putting them in boiling water. So, you know, so there's some techniques besides just putting them on a piece of sandpaper and rubbing them with your hand and actually scraping them. And so, and you know, what's that doing? Well, I, you know, for some reason that action helps to trigger the whole, you know, it's an enzyme release that, that then um, causes all sorts of things to start to happen in the seed. And it's pretty complicated, actually. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about it generally. These kinds of questions are best answered around specific individual plants. Plants, yes. And so the best play, if you want a general overview, of, you know, I mean, ask locally, ask your local BLM Forest Service, Native Plant Society. If you're if you're gathering seeds and you're trying to figure out the flower seed industry has figured this out for lots of weird things as we brought in more exotics into our lives um, through flowers. Those are great ways to do it. If all else fails and you're Steve, if you're sitting by yourself in Wyoming and you can't get to town, and there's nobody to ask, you know, if, if that's where you are, you're in R Romania, there is a book. It's called Collecting, Harvesting, Germinating the Seeds to Wildland Plants. And it's been out of print for a number of years, but it may have been put back in. And you can get that. I, last time I, I saw it, I got a used copy on Amazon. And that was a couple, maybe uh, 25 years ago, that didn't do a lot of stratification testing themselves or scarification. What they did was survey the world's literature for all the known stories about them and put them together in a book. And I found that really helpful for those things that I had a hard time, you know, trying to crack. Yeah. And, and if I can, I'll find a link. All right. S. Robinson says, I may not get this right, but can you explain how, when, 
you grow from seed, it's the second generation of the seed that you want when you grow in your garden. Maybe it's the seed from the second plant grown that adapts to your environment. Uh, I know what they're asking here. They're asking, they're asking about how do plants become more adapted to my space? Save the seeds. <laughs> and that second generation that they mentioned is going to be more adapted to your space than the first generation. And the third generation is going to be more adapted and so on. Yeah, that's uh, each plant reacts to environmental stresses. And we now know that those stresses, the reaction that the plant takes to them can be recorded by not, not in its DNA, not by changing its genes, but by changing how it expresses genes. It can literally roll up DNA coils or unroll DNA coils. And this is a science called epigenetics. Mm-hmm. Barbara McClintock won, I think it's in 1959, won the Nobel Prize for her study in this. And it's just taken us about 50 or 60 years of study to really realize that this is having an incredible effect. And so I know most orthodox geneticists are tend toward the Mendelian model and say, no, if you just plant a plant and it doesn't cross with a plant that's more adapted to your region or has new genes, then it, it's the same plant as the year before. But we know that's not true now. And that helps to explain a lot of what gardeners have been seeing in their gardens year after year. And that's that seeds that do that, if you save the seeds from something, or in most cases for most people, it's just they reseed themselves, right? They're volunteers. And those are always stronger, better, faster, earlier, it seems, in your compost pile or wherever it happens. And so that would be the ex- explanation to that. So complicated genetics, you can forget all that. All you need to do is save seeds from the plants that do well in your gardens. And you can actually push these tolerances in different directions. So in other words, if you have a killer frost, we were Mm -hmm. talking about that earlier, and all your plants are dead, your tomatoes, they all go down except for one of them. Except for one. Save those seeds. Save those seeds. You know, John Navazio, plant breeder at Johnny's, was telling me he has moved the open pollinated vegetable crops, especially the cold season crops that Johnny sells, spinach, cabbage family, there are a number of them, uh, carrots, he loves to work on carrots. He's moved them um, um, 10 degrees in their really? tolerance in the time he's been at Johnny's. And so how do you do that? He goes, Bill, go hard on them. Only save seeds from those things that make it through really cold periods. Let them die. Whenever you see a disaster in your yard, and you and I talk about this a lot on this show, yeah? good gardeners know that a disaster that wipes you out is a disaster. A disaster that wipes out all, almost everything that's what you're looking for because that's what you want to save your seeds for because then you're adapting your plants to that kind of a disaster in the future. And that's exactly what we're going to have to do with climate change. Oh, amen. Hannah's popped a link in the Q&A. It's for a book, Collecting, Processing, and oh. Germinating Seeds of Wild Plants. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's the one, Hannah. If you wouldn't mind dropping that in the – oh, and Bill put it in the – I put it in the chat just now. Perfect. 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 Thank you for that, Hannah. Let's see here. We got more questions. Kane, Zone 8, Salem, Oregon. 
it's seed harvesting time for my spring and biennial plants, my first big year, thanks to you too. How would you recommend storing them? And how can I reliably determine germination rate for sale? Easy, cool, dark, and dry mm -hmm. to store them. If you're in Oregon where the fog comes in, if you're near the coast in one of those valleys, only package them up on sunny, hot days, mm -hmm. sunny, dry days. You don't want all that moisture in your bags. There are silicon desiccants mm -hmm. that come in almost everything you buy these days. Save them. We do because we use yep, them for save that. Save them. You know, rice, little bags of rice can help with that. Clay people use. But you want to get keep them as, as dry as you can and then cool. If As long as it doesn't get above 80 in your storage space and through mm -hmm. the winter in Oregon, you should be fine, and, and especially in a house with air conditioning, if you've got that. Yeah, yeah so storage is easy. The uh, germination, I'm trying to think where, you know, we teach germination in every single seed school yep. that we sure do. And we, teach um, it in, and we teach it in seed school online. Seed school online is a great place. We actually have people do it online as we talk about it. So coffee filter paper, germination paper works better. You could do like a five by five of the seeds laid out on the paper, get the paper damp first, and then roll it up carefully into a roll so that every time you fold over, it folds over a roll so that you don't mm -hmm. lose their place. Then fold over the next one and fold over the next one until you have a little roll. You can put those rolled up paper towels or coffee filters in a bag. I use a Ziploc bag or whatever. I leave it open. You don't. You want them damp. You don't want them too damp. You don't want it to mold. Keep that at room temp. There are rules for germination testing. If you if you really want official germ tests, it's called the American Association of Seed Analysts (AOSA). You can nice. go to their website and you can get a. I think you know they make you pay for it, but you can uh, download a PDF of the official rules and what they'll tell you is that you're gonna need certain temp within a range of temps and then how many days for each of the different kinds of crops. Your home germ test done, you know, if you wanna get official germination paper or the papers I talked about is just as valid. They'll tell you how many seeds to test. Uh, for small scale companies, most people don't need to do the 300 or 500 seeds. I mean, when I'm my little company, I didn't even have 500 seeds for some of the stuff I was selling, you know? So, right. and, and at Native Seed Search, when uh, Bella and I were directors there, they did 25 seeds of each variety. They did five across and five up. And then they would, after five days, they would just look and see which one sprouted. They would count them, multiply times four, there's your germ percentage. Put the date on it. You're required probably in most states or federally to test every 15 months. Right. So you can you keep go. that germ test for and, another 15 months. And here's the thing about the expiration date on the pack of seeds. It's the expiration yeah. of the germination test. It's not the expiration of the seeds. I get people to ask me that all the time. It's like, yeah. well, these seeds are expired. No, they're not. <laughs> seeds expire when we kill them. Yeah. By yeah, we had too hot or whatever. We had routinely got 90% germ on wow. our tomato seed that was 10 years old. Yeah. Seeds are magic, living, breathing. You know, they're they're way smarter than we are. Every system you're going to have to deal with, whether it's your computer or the post office or whatever, you know, if you're around seeds, the seeds are the most durable part of that system. So, and even if the germ drops, 
I had, I just, um, I'm eating tomatoes from 35-year-old tomato seeds. Wow. And, and I only got 60% germination. Oh, no. <laughs> I got 60%. I got if plants get, and I'm, eat, I'm eating tomatoes. Who cares? You know? Right. If you get 4%, you still have a plant to grow. Right. Exactly. Let's see. Kane says, if one of my kohlrabi kale was eaten badly by aphids, but I was able to save a handful of the seeds, should I plant that again for aphid resistance or now is it weaker seed as a result? Say that. I say that one more time. His kohlrabi kale was eaten badly by aphids. Should I plant it again for aphid, aphid resistance or is it now weaker seed as a result? I'd say um, it depends. Well, yes, maybe. Well, I'd say the seed could be, each seed could be weaker. In other words, if you grow spectacularly strong and vibrant in incredible plants, it's just like humans, they'll have great kids. You know, they'll be six foot tall or what, you know, or whatever. However, however, you may be selecting for a genetic disposition for one of those stresses. You know, they may have their DNA rolled up or whatever. So mm -hmm. I would always, the ones that do best, again, if all your whole row gets hit with aphids, walk down and see which plant is doing best. Those are the ones you want to save. Excellent. So this next question is from Jeremy, and I want to be careful how we answer it. You ready? Yeah. I have seeds from cover crop mixes that are patented. Can I get in trouble by keeping the seed for next year's cover crop? I imagine it would be a slim chance I'd ever get caught. But what if I was to sell the seeds from those cover crops locally? I definitely wouldn't sell them. What are your thoughts? Well, so here's how you can help me. I'll answer the question, but I need help. Which cover crops in the mix are patented? I've never seen a patented cover crop, and I'm really right. interested. All right? So, uh, because that's a big, that's a big step. Yeah. That's huge. Which, which is patenting a cover crop? Yeah. 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 That, that's huge. They're, they're, they're bridging a divide there that hasn't yeah. been bridged. This will be a seminal moment in, the, in all of what we're doing. And, and to do it in a mix is really an interesting strategy. Yeah. Because how do you know? Well, and how do you know it's patented? That would be my question. So here's what I would say, and what I I'll, let me just tell you what I do. I grow and save seeds, and I share them with people. Yeah. And as far as I, you know, patenting can say, and especially in the contract language, the shrink wrap contract that you agree to when you open the bag, mm -hmm. that's how a lot of this protection comes. It may specifically say you cannot share those seeds, you, uh, you know, and so that I, I, all I'll tell you is that I grow and save and share seeds. That's all I'm going to say. T Tess says, I love this Tess. Thanks for being here again. She's here on a lot of our events and always right. brings, brings good content. She said, how can a seed or seed mix be patented? That's like patenting a fingerprint, right? Right. Well, you um, know, most, pe most people would start with the question, how can you patent life anyway? Right. Well, that was Chicardi <laughs> versus Diamond in 1992, I think, is where that came from. But that's just well, and and in Europe, in Europe right now, you can't patent a plant unless you've genetically modified it, unless oh. it really is a new invention. 
that yeah. nobody ever that seems to be something that smart people all over the world are starting to agree about but to take something that is created with generally biological processes mm-hmm. and say you own it after maybe thousands of years of pe- having people work on it yeah, just doesn't ludicrous. make sense that's ludicrous. just doesn't make sense and yeah. so i you know so i would write to the company selling whatever you know if it's a mail order company that's available to gardeners or whoever you got the cover crop from and I would let them know that I'm not interested in protected or patented seeds. Yeah. All right. So we've got six questions here to answer. Let's get them done because I want to get to dinner. It's getting almost nine o'clock here. ST says, does ambient temperature matter as much as soil temperature? Well, for what? Soil temp right. is what matters for germination. Yeah. Period. So that, yeah. So no, right. ambient temperature doesn't matter as much as soil temperature. I got a little pocket soil thermometer. And I stick it into the soil just about as deep as my seeds are going to go. That's how you find out what it is, if you're really interested in that. And and I found that I could slope my soil three or four degrees to the south when I lived in the mountains. And the soil temp would go up three weeks earlier. Just a little bit more solar. It's unbelievable what you can do if you just play with things. So There you go. So somebody asked, Santa Barbara Inland has 90 degrees and higher in September and some in October. When to plant? We can't tell you when to plant there. You're going to have to get yourself a planting calendar and, you know, experiment. That's really what it's about. We, when we were trying to figure out when to plant white Sonora wheat when at Patagonia, Arizona, uh-huh. for native seed search at the farm, I was getting so many different reports about when to plant and what would be successful or most successful. One year I had them plant a little bit in November, December, January, and February. There you go. And guess what? I, it was like January, I think, worked best that year. I mean, it doesn't always, you know, depending on the year, but yeah, experiment. If you don't know, take a little bit and you tell us. Yeah. There's, um, a, really, there's a really great permaculture group in Santa Barbara. They get and they have events. I'm trying to Wesley. What's his name? Wesley Rowe. Yeah, there you go. Rowe. Yeah, I think if I were in uh, type in Santa Barbara permaculture, those people have been dialing into how to create a food forest out of Santa Barbara for what 30 years. Yeah. All right. This is an interesting question from Abby. She said, "Any recommendation for any free seed courses aside from YouTube?" Here's the problem, Abby. The free ones are worth what you pay for them you know so we put together our seed school online and that's how we you know that's we you know we do these for free and part of how we pay for them is people buy our seed school online and if you wanted to you could send me an email greg at urbanfarm.org and i will send you a coupon for a hundred dollars off that but i don't know of any free seed saving courses out there you know other than youtube there's probably if you put it together it would take you longer than it would to take the course but you could probably find all sorts of tricks on TikTok now you yeah, know but, and well, so here's the thing about C school yeah here's the thing about C school online it's there's a method to it. it takes you you know from beginning to end so right Kane says i've just harvested the seed in summer and the temps are still not above 90 degrees should i be worried about the seeds not at all no, harvest away and keep them cool, dark, and dry, and you know, yeah, make sure they're dry. Seeds routinely go through, you know, heat and a dry down when they're first getting ready, and somehow I, they make it through. And I'm the same way. My corns, 
you know, going through 103 degree days right now. I had grains out that were, went through 100 degree weather and I got yeah. really great germ after, after I harvested them. You know, I put out an email last week and I posted this on uh, uh, Facebook. Next week, we have our, we have our uh, grain class on Wednesday night with mm-hmm. you and me and Kari. And then we have our seed, Saturday, seed up Saturday on Saturday. And I posted on Facebook, I said, you want to learn how to grow grass? I'm sorry, you want to learn how to grow grain? It's really easy. It's like, it's grass, guys. <laughs> right? Literally. Literally, it's grass. Well, if you get into einkorn and rye, especially are just wild grasses that have been selected. So, yeah. yeah. So, Jeremy says, thank you for the clarification. This is a green cover seed mix. Certain seeds in the mix say that they're patented. Here's the thing. Seed companies will do all kinds of crazy shit. They will put open pollinated seeds in a packet that says hybrid. You know, they do stuff like that. So they just may be saying on it that it's patented when it's not. That's why I asked earlier. It's like, how do you know it's patented? You know, they show me the, you know, when I patent, if I have, if I have this cup and I create a patent for this cup, I'm sure it's patented cup because it's insulated and so on. I can go to the patent office and look up the patent to know that it's patented. And the seed companies are pretty hold back about telling us that information. So we really have to hold their feet to the fire, don't we, Bill? Well, yeah, they're, you know, the onus is on them yeah. to, inf- to enforce. Right. And there's, a, and there's a six-year statute of limitations on them. In other words, if you knowingly save and share seeds... Or, you know, I, I, I think realistically, nobody's going to come after you. As yeah. long as you're, you know, if you start selling them and you do it for six years, you're so small and you knowingly and publicly say these, you know, yeah. say the variety or whatever, they would even lose their ability to enforce the patent after six years. And so now on the other side of that, Monsanto enforced every patent infringement that they thought they saw and took hundreds of farmers to court. And they didn't even have to win the court cases that just the legal fees alone took a number of farmers down and ruined their lives and did all sorts of stuff. So you have to, I mean, a legal sword pointed at you is a, is a pretty scary thing. So I don't pretend, you know, to know, I do know that I'm that together, you know, I think we can beat this. I think we can do what they did in Europe. I think it's just a matter of awareness. And so, you know, at Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, we started a patent-free seed campaign. Rebecca Newburn from the Seed Library, Seed yep. Library Nat wants to re- resurrect that in a larger and more public oh, and national thing. Yeah. So, so there's a meeting. So if you want to email me, you know, bill at seedsave.org, I'll make sure you get on a list as we start to put that together. Excellent. I got one more question from Tess and then we're going to wrap. Okay. She says, I want to clarify S. Robison's question for myself. I've heard that there are certain plants that if you plant the seed, it will not produce the crop that that first year, that the seed must go to seed and those seeds will produce a crop the next year. Is this a folk myth? No, I think he's getting mixed up with the definition of uh, modern hybrids. 
That's generally the depth. Most gardeners understand modern hybrids. So if you see F1 on your packard or it says mm -hmm. hybrid, most American gardeners know you can't plant those and save those seeds and get the same crop the next year. All right? But yeah. do it anyways. Do it anyway, right? Because that's where all the diversity is unlocked and we're learning yeah. to, to have fun and to select out and eventually we can get out what we want. And so that's probably, so down the road, generations down the road, you you can stabilize any hybrid. I know we're using big words and kind of generalizing, we don't have a lot of time, but that's yeah. one of the things we do very clearly in Seed School Online. Yes, so, we, get, we, we get into and talk about this, but just grow and save your own seeds from plants that you like. And what's the worst thing that could happen if you break that rule and you're, there's genetic mistakes and things aren't happening for you? What's the worst thing that happens in a garden, a home garden? You still eat. Yeah, that's right. Generally, it produces something you can eat. So there's really no loss. You're still gardening, okay? Yeah. So why not take the chance? These rules and these ideas are basically for industrial ag where they have to know it has to be uniform. It has to be complicated. For us small gardeners, we're here to rock and roll and have fun. Yeah. Heidi loves the Campari tomato. Okay, great. See them, see them, in, the, see them in the grocery store. So I went on a search for Campari tomato seeds. Great. You, you can't buy them. Ooh, see, is it trademarked or what? Well, you know, this is try to buy Tabasco pepper seed. Uh -huh. It's a, it's almost like Thomas Jefferson days. It's under penalty of death to oh, take wow. those seeds off the island that they're where they're grown in uh, Louisiana or oh, the secret for how to make the sauce. Yeah, yeah. So I we bought us some containers of uh, Campari tomatoes and I cut them in half. And I scoop the goo out of them. I used the out, outside shell of the Campari in the pasta we were making. And I, I saved them through the wet method. So I put them in a jar and I let them sit there for three days. I put all the goo and all the seeds fell to the bottom. And then I water winnowed. Mm -hmm. I filled it with water and poured it off. And it filled it with water and poured it off until it was clean. And then I dumped it onto a screen and let them dry. And uh, actually, I dumped them on a screen. I turned it over on a, on a paper towel. And I have Campari tomato seeds. Now, it'll be interesting to see what we get when we grow them. But, hey. Mike, my guess is that they'll be great, you know, first year. I'm just guessing. Yeah. You know, will be great. Hybrid tomato seed is really expensive to produce. You have to pay somebody to hand. They've got some... Um, cytoplasmic sterility stuff going on in a lot of crops but i i don't know about tomatoes and so my guess is that they've been stabilized they're open pollinated and you can use them i'm just guessing yeah well we'll find out yeah next year know. this time i will tell yeah. you yes so any last thoughts bill before we check out and, uh, next month actually one of my next thoughts is kari spencer is on on with us in the seed chat next month because you're going to be where well hopefully i'll be in india india to at a the seed ninth, ninth right it's the ninth session of the governing body of the international treaty for plant genetic resources for nice. food and agriculture yeah and nice uh, but that aside don't miss kari don't miss just, oh yeah she's amazing she is just phenomenal author and practitioner 
Yeah. Very wise. Yeah. Goes, and I think her knowledge goes back generations. You know, she's like the, a long line of, of family people that have been doing this. And so, and yeah. You, you have a seed school in a day coming up in Cornville, don't you? It's in Rimrock, which is near where I am in central Arizona. Yeah, uh-huh. you can go to seedsave.org, my website. And okay. there's a, on, under learn, you'll see the Rimrock um, seed and grain school. We're just, just we're opening up. We're going to bring in local people that know what they're doing. I'm going to give an overview of, uh, because of the 60 or so schools that I've done. And it's in October, what, 12? I can't remember the exact date. 15th. October 15th. Cool. Because I had somebody ask me about that today in a consult. Oh, so, good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just got back yesterday from Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And we just did a three-day grain school there. And it was nice. fantabulous. Nice. It nice, was nice so nice. much fun. Nice. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. Um, we do these events for free every month to get people educated. I just put urbanfarm.org forward slash support. And, you know, if you want to throw a, lo- a little bit of love our way, throw a donation, please do. We appreciate it. It helps keep the lights on and helps keep us uh, in seeds. So thank you very much. Thanks and, for the, uh, all the questions. This has yeah. been great. All right. Bye, guys. See you next month. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.